you feel ready to jump in? Are you ready? Come on. Come on. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right. Well, as we get going here this morning, I would really like for us, if we can, just to prepare our hearts. We've been, we prepared our hearts by, by um, loving the Lord and, and worship and giving. But if we can, just for a moment, before we jump into God's word, I, I want to lead us in prayer. And, and as we ask God to just open up our hearts and our minds, that we would be willing to listen with ears to hear, but a heart to receive it. Okay, so let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you and open up your word, we ask, Father, that we would come before you with with a heart to hear, that your word would pierce into our heart and into our soul, and that we would listen not just um, to learn something, but we would uh, listen to to, uh, receive something that we can do and be so that we can honor you in every way that you want us to. And as we look forward to this next year, God, May we do it with a, with a heart and a, and a passion and a love um, that emanates from the deepest part of who we are because you have infiltrated our soul. And so, God, we just pray and, and ask for your anointing over this, um, of this message. I pray, Father, that you would guide my words and, and my thoughts. And, and, Father, that you would bless um, uh, your word that we share today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we want to take some time, as, and we're doing this at all three ca- uh, campuses, or <laughs> all three locations this morning, um, and we're going to take some time to, to look at the plans that we have coming up for this new exciting year here at the Westridge West, and we're looking forward to this coming year. As we're looking forward to it, I think it's important to look back at where we've been this last year, and I'm not going to take a whole lot of time looking back, but I, I think we have some things to be excited about, some things to be very grateful for. And so I just want to point a couple of those things out as we get started this morning. As many of you know, we went through a, a leadership um, transition in May of this past year, and in so many ways it was sort of like a, a restart for us. Some people decided this was the time to move on to another ministry, but most stayed here with us um, to rebuild our new team and to begin the next phase of our ministry here. And I transitioned from being the worship pastor to now being the lead pastor. Eric Bailey took on the responsibility of pastor us, pastoring us in worship, and I think he does um, a great job, don't you? I think he really does. Well, the next position we were able to hire was our uh, children's pastor, uh, Dave Cole, and his awesome wife, Haley. I think we have one of the best couples that are, that are leading our children's ministry here uh, in David and Haley, and I just, I just think that they do a great job as well. Um, and next, we were able to add Zach Morgan to our team as our student pastor. Zach um, has just been tearing it up on Sunday mornings over there in the media center, and he's leading our kids in biblical teaching, and, and he's um, leading our, our students in, uh, in worship and in and, and small groups, and he's just been doing that with a great team, and, and Zach is, is just on fire. And with 14 years of experience on staff at, at the East Paulding location, my wife, Christy, took over the responsibility of our preschool ministry. And I think it would be fair to say that as a volunteer, Christy is probably the most gifted, experienced, qualified leader of that ministry that we could ever ask for here. And she's quite a foxy lady, too, if I must say so myself. 
Next, um, Mitch Moyer, along with uh, his sweet wife, Diana, took over the helm as the leaders of our guest services ministry. Uh, Mitch led the guest services area on staff as a staff member at the Cartersville location and when, he was, when it was still Oak Leaf Church. And so I feel tremendously blessed um, to have him and, and Diana here on our team now. Ken McGarity also assumed a new role leading our prayer ministry here at West. Ken is um, a church leadership strategist and a consultant professionally. And so in addition to leading the prayer ministry with his wife, Claudia, he also assists me with, with strategic planning. And let me tell you, I think that having Ken on our team is, is a tremendous blessing. Our latest addition is Dee Dee Lane. Coming on board just about uh, two months ago, Dee Dee serves as my administrative assistant, which really means that she does just about everything for our church. And finally, I've saved him for last because he's the only member of our team that is still doing the same thing he came to do here when we launched 16 months ago. Brian Brunke leads our group's ministry, giving oversight and assistance to our journey group leaders. And so for that, way to go, Brian. We hold you in high regard. Now, there are many other ministry leaders here at West, but these are the peoples that I consider our staff here at the West location. We meet every week for prayer and, and training and ministry planning. Um, once a month, we get together for an extended meeting where we do uh, that in a more extended way, and we get really deep and involved in that, and we just have a great time. Now, uh, those eight people, nine including me that I just mentioned, only Eric, David, Didi, and myself are, are compensated from the church. I'm the only full-time employee. That's what we're able to do at this point. But let me tell you, volunteer or, or paid, this is an incredible and dynamic team. And we are blessed beyond measure to have this staff here. And I would like for you to let them know how much you appreciate them right now. All right. That's right. Now, in just the past eight months that we've been building this team, we began in the summer just really um, refocusing and rebuilding and retooling. And since then, we have populated those teams. They lead with faithful uh, workers and, and team members. And we set out this past fall to begin infiltrating uh, in a serious way, the communities and the neighborhoods around this school. We've served thousands of people at both uh, the Fall Festival here at Poole and the Ragsdale Fall Festival as well. We set a goal of 50 cars and 1,000 people at our very first Trunk Fest in October, and we ended up with over 60 cars. I think it was like 65 cars and over 1,200 people at that event. We had an estimated 15 to 20 families visit our church as a result of that outreach. Next, we committed to be the host for Hope for Christmas here at, for the West Side. And we set an absolutely God-sized goal of sharing Christmas with 400 families. And to do that, we determined we would need over 300 volunteers. And at the end of the, end of the day, um, we served uh, uh, somewhere around 430 to 450 families, which represented some 2,000 people here at Poole on that day. I was very concerned where we were going to find 300 volunteers since we only have about 150 adults here on any given Sunday. But incredibly, in addition to 350, uh, the 300 volunteers we needed, we really had 350 volunteers that signed, it up, signed up and more than 300 came just on the day of the event. 
And in addition, our student pastor, Zach, led eight people to Christ that day. Seven of them lived far uh, a ways away and were part of a Spanish-speaking community. But the young, other young fellow was here, and, he, and he, um, he, he was here to serve, and he met uh, his Savior that day. And, and I can tell you that his name is Jay, and, and he's doing great. He serves um, throughout the week as a volunteer um, in the maintenance area over at um, the East Campus through the week. I get a lot of time to spend with him. I usually have lunch with him about once a week. And he comes here on Sunday mornings and goes over and, and helps Zach um, with the student ministry over there. And so I think that's just an, an awesome thing to see what God did, not only um, by helping people with Christmas, but also to leading um, someone like that uh, to the Lord. And I just think that's uh, really, really incredible. Our next event was Christmas, our Christmas Eve service. Last year we had two services and we had about 260 people total uh, in attendance that morning or that afternoon. And this year our journey groups went out into the community and they passed out about 1,000 flyers into the neighborhoods around here. And we had uh, about 315 who actually came to the service a couple of weeks ago. And the room was just jam-packed and it was just absolutely electric. I don't know if you had a chance to be here, but it was so exciting. What a great great way to end the year. And so I would say that we as the West uh, Paulding location have much to be grateful for, don't we? Don't we? We do. Well, about six months ago, shortly after taking the lead here at West, I had a chance to teach on a Sunday morning. And I felt compelled to take a biblical look at why we are here in this community. What's our purpose and what was our goal? And what we learned together was that when looking at Genesis chapter 1, right from the beginning of Scripture, Jesus, um, um, the, the Lord just inspired uh, that word to be written that we were made in His image. And as such, we were uh, His image bearers, reflecting His nature and His character and His values and His passions to the world and to one another. And what we uncovered was that God's desire for us was to be a reflector or a reflection of God back to himself, which we called worship. And when we reflect God to, to one another, it's called biblical fellowship or community. And when we reflect God, we reflect God to an, a lost and searching world. We call that mission or, um, or we call that evangelism or we call that outreach. And so this morning, as we celebrate our recent past and we focus now on what's to come, I want to take that idea and expound on it for a little bit. So if we were created to reflect God, to image Him, then it becomes incredibly important for us to understand who God is and what He ultimately is about. So our first question we need to answer this morning is, what is God about? So in order for us to answer that question, we need to dig in and find what God is passionate about. What, above all else, does he value? What is of greatest importance to him? We have to find this out because if what we are doing isn't what God is doing, then what we're doing just doesn't matter. So we need to know what is God about. You know, it's amazingly surprising, but it's incredibly simple. God is about God. God is about God. And this is a revelation even to a lot of Christians. A lot of my friends would say to me, but wait a second, doesn't God love us? 
God cares for us, right? He made us. He watches over us. God is for his children. He made his children, and he made the world, and he rescued the world. And his greatest concern is for us as his children, right? Well, all of those things are true except for the conclusion. Let me help you think of it in, in this way, and, and we can kind of look at it in what they call a, a cat and dog theology. Now, a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago when I had a, the chance to speak here last, I introduced you to my little puppy, um, Nikki. And if we can put, there's my, there's my puppy, Nikki. And uh, he's my little puppy dog. And, uh, and I want to give you uh, uh, my, my puppy dog or, or a dog's theology. Nikki says to me, you feed me, you shelter me, you groom me, you care for me, you must be God. Now I want to introduce you to my cat. This is my cat, Chloe. Notice she's in my wife's lap. Chloe says, you feed me, you shelter me, you groom me, you care for me. I must be God. <laughs> so, so if we call this a canine theology and a feline theology, then in this case, the dog lovers win the argument. <laughs> I knew that was going to get a little bit of reaction there. On November 27th, 2007, John Piper wrote a blog about the zeal God has for his own glory, and it literally went viral. In it, he lays out 32 ways or places or verses in Scripture that spans from Genesis to Revelation, laying out God's passion for his own glory. And I just have time to share five of those 32, and and Piper makes it clear that there's many, many more. And I'm only going to be able to give you five of of the ones that he put in in his blog. Number one, God created us for his glory. Isaiah wrote, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone is called by my name whom I created for my glory. Number two, God called Israel for his glory. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Jeremiah wrote, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. I acted for the sake of my name, he said in Ezekiel, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And Jesus told us to do good works so that God gets the glory. And you're familiar with this verse, I'm sure, In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in the new Jerusalem, that's the city that that God is preparing for us in heaven, the glory of God replaces the sun. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21, we read that. So, Scripture is about God. The Bible is about God being about God. Whatever God is doing, He's doing it ultimately for Himself. If He's working, He's working for His glory. If He's blessing, He's blessing that He might get the glory. If He's teaching, if He's disciplining, if He's discipling, if He's correcting, He's doing it so that His name and His renown will be made first place of importance. Can you imagine if any one of you or any one of us 
ever said that about ourselves? That would sound so incredibly arrogant, wouldn't it? And it would be. And you might think that it sounds arrogant even for God. And it would be as well if he weren't God. But the fact is, he is God. And that means that he has no choice. Let me show you what I mean. Because he is God, he knows what is true. And the truth is, he is supreme. And because he's God, he knows what is right. And the right way is his way. And because he is God, he knows who has ultimate strength and power. And that it is him. And in his book, I Am Not, But I Know I Am, Louis Giglio points out that if God failed to exalt himself in any possible way, if he failed to do that, he would exalt something or someone else as central, something that isn't central at all. This would make God both unwise and unloving. Unwise because it wouldn't demonstrate that he didn't know what was best and unloving because he would be allowing our affection and, uh, and attention to be aimed towards something that was less than the very best. But because God encompasses all wisdom and is the source of pure love, he has no choice but to exalt himself above all things. Now, this is really good for you and me for several reasons. Number one, knowing that God is about God frees us up to also fully and wholly be about God. What this means is that I don't have to be about myself. I don't have to be the point. Everything doesn't need to be about me. I don't always have to be looking out and trying to take care of myself, me, number one. When you are the point, when everything needs to be about you, not only are you miserable, but you make everyone around you miserable because no one can live up to your expectations that you have for them. No one will ever, and neither can they, measure up to how important you are to you when you are most important. So you are always frustrated with the folks around you for somehow missing the mark on your importance. And let me tell you this morning, sometimes it can be subtle. It can be subtle. And I'm just not talking about the arrogant guy that maybe we all have a picture of in our mind. Every one of us struggles with this. But the second thing that this means, that God is about God, is that when we are willing to let God be the point, that means we can let God be solely responsible for our joy. We don't have to be responsible for it. And the thing about this is that we are desperate, are, are we not, just to be happy. Don't worry, be happy is a nice tune, but life doesn't work that way, does it? Life hurts sometimes. People are mean. But when I freely give up my rights and my importance and let God be the one who supplies that, then I can live with joy regardless of the worries of this world, right? True? My pursuit of joy and God's pursuit of his own glory are not in opposition with one another because when God leads me to make more and more of himself in my life, it leads me into greater and greater peace and joy. Amen? All right. And finally, if our salvation is not about us, but about God getting glory for my salvation, then the joy that we've been brought into is, is a blessing that will last forever. Since God is eternal and my importance is tied to him, then nothing changes for all of eternity. Make sense? 
So we began with a question this morning, what do we need to be about this new year? What is our vision? What is our mission this year? And so what we've learned is that whatever we say we are going to engage in and whatever we're going to prioritize, it needs to be in parallel with what is important to God. And what is important to God is how he can glorify himself in us or in me. And so how does God want to be glorified in me? How does he want to be glorified in us as a church? We as a church have searched the scriptures, meaning all of us, Brian and all of us together, we've searched the scriptures and we've come up with four specific ways that we can or should glorify to God together as a church. And we've narrowed them down to four words, and I'm sure you've heard Brian teach about it in the past. Their simple words are love, grow, serve, and share. We're to love God. We're to love God. Jesus told us in Mark 12 to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind and your strength. And for us, that means that we're going to be wholehearted worshipers of God. When we come together, we're going to be um, worshiping um, with, with, the whole, uh, with our whole heart when we come together. And while loving and worshiping God is no way limited to singing or attending here um, on Sunday mornings, there is an incredible uniqueness about a group of believers who are gathered together singing and serving and giving and having fellowship with one another together. And so I want to encourage you. I really want to encourage you to make Sunday mornings a priority in your schedule. Not because, just because the doors are open, but because the door of revelation has been opened to you and to me and he's inviting us into fellowship with his body, the church. So let's do it because we can. We glorify God when we grow deeper and deeper in the understanding of God. We magnify God when his, um, when, through his word and his life. And God will be glorified in us when we learn more and more about who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he values, what he hates, and what he loves. We make much of God when we uh, get into a journey group or listen intently to a message at church or pick up our Bibles on our own and read with a hunger that comes from knowing that Jesus is the point and he takes responsibility for my joy. He takes responsibility for my joy. And God is glorified when we grow into being more about him and less about anything else. We worship God and bring him glory when we become more and more a people that it doesn't have to be about ourselves, but we're willing to serve one another, to help one another, to make someone else's burden a little bit lighter because we have a motivation that comes from the soul of a lost man or a lost woman that was saved by the grace of a cross. And finally, we make much of God, bringing him the praise that is due only to God when we share what we've been given. All throughout Scripture, we read as we as God's people set apart chosen to be his children, have been blessed beyond measure to the point that it goes beyond life here on the earth and it literally reaches up into heaven. Ephesians 1 tells us that we as God's children have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, not only here, but what is in heaven, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So our blessings are so great that earth can't even hold them. And because so much has been given to us so freely, we share, right? We go out into our neighborhood and we give out candy at uh, Halloween and we give out presents and hens at Christmas. 
Or more personally, we choose to live with intentional relationship with people around us. And that's something that we as a whole church, all three locations, want to in, uh, really want to uh, pursue this year. Intentional relationships with people God puts in front of us. And it might look like a dinner for folks um, in my, on my block or for families um, of, the, uh, of the people who are on our, our child's ball team. It might uh, look like a special relationship that I pursue with a colleague to show them and tell them about Christ. However it fleshes out, we're going to be intentional. So how are we going to do this? Well, I've thought a lot about it coming into this year, and all kinds of ideas have swirled around in my head, and our staff has been discussing it and praying about it for months. And we've zeroed in on a few things we are, that we feel are very important for us to pursue. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be unveiling some of those things. But God has put on my heart more importantly than the programs and the events that we're going to pursue. I think the number one thing that God would have us to do this year is to pursue unity. Now, I say that not because I think that we're not unified. I have no reason to think that. Coming off of uh, a ministry like Hope for Christmas where just about every one of you contributed in at least one way, I'm not concerned that we have a unity problem. Not at all. We're extremely healthy as a church. But the reason I feel compelled to press us, to push us, to keep pursuing unity is because a church that works together, that strives together, that fights together is a force that God will use exponentially, not only in our lives, but in the community that we were planted here to reach. But just the opposite is also true. A church divided is a church that is powerless. It's weak and it's broken. And it's just a miserable place to be. And let me just say, the unity that I'm talking about isn't just not fighting. We don't even have that going on here. Nobody's fighting here. What I'm talking about is the fact that we are all buying in. We're all feeling responsibility for what happens here as a church. This is our church. That's why I love the new name change. This is your church. This is our church. And so we're not going to just let somebody else take care of the the children in the nursery. We're not going to just let somebody else take care of our kids. We're not going to let somebody else go out and and pass out flyers so people will come and and be a part of what's going on here. We're not going to let somebody else lead people to Christ. We're all going to get in this together. We're unified around it. We're, We're all jumping in. We're all involved. We're all going to do it together. That's the unity that I'm talking about. So in light of that, I want us to look at a familiar passage of Scripture that I hope will be a huge encouragement to us today in that regard. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Philippians chapter 2, and if you don't, we're going to have it on the screen for you. Put your finger right there for a minute in Philippians. And before we begin to read this passage, let me give you some background, of, just in case you may not be familiar with what's going on in this book of Philippians. Philippians is a book of the Bible, but um, originally it was a letter that Paul wrote to a church located in a place called Philippi. He had led some people to Christ on his second missionary journey that he took, and he had planted a church there as a result. And at the time he was writing this letter, Paul had been thrown into jail for preaching about Jesus in another place far away. And so he was writing this letter from his jail cell. And if you read this letter, what you'll see is, that Paul really has a lot of love and affection for this particular church. 
they seem to be healthy. And so rather than spending a lot of time correcting them, like we see in the other letters that he's written to some of the other churches, instead he is just encouraging them in his writing. And once he's done kind of telling them what's going on in his own life, he kind of transitions and he shifts his focus and his encouragement to them begins in verse 27. I just want to read that quickly before we get to Philippians 2. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so we see right away that Paul's number one concern for them is living as though their salvation is worth something. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, unified together. Now let's look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing selfishly, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So Paul, with tremendous love, begins this chapter appealing to their sense of reason. He says, if the joy of knowing Jesus, of having Jesus lead you into the joy you've been looking for your whole life, if there's any encouragement in that, any comfort there, if you feel the Spirit revealing the affection and the sympathy that God has for you, then will you add to my joy? Will you make my joy complete by being unified in all humility? Do it in humility. With humility, let others be the point. With humility, let their interests, their needs, their hurts be more significant than yours. Sound familiar? Can you imagine what it would look like if a church, week after week, month after month, year after year, was truly able to accomplish this as a body? To truly serve one another with sincere humility? To love God so deeply that to serve the least of these in the community, in Jesus' name, would be its greatest joy. No one looked for his, out for his own interests, promoted his own style, her own way of doing things, but esteemed others more important than themselves. And I think that's why the next four verses are so significant. Theologians call them a Christological diamond concerning the incarnation of Jesus which is just a fancy way of saying that these verses are a stinking, mind-blowing explanation of what took place when God the Son came and lived among men as a man to show us the way to God. It's one of the richest four verses theologically in the whole Bible. Volumes and volumes have been written about these four verses. But there's another beautiful side to them, an amazing practical side a helpful side that gives us incredible encouragement in our efforts to live out what Paul just pleaded for us to do as a church. 
And I think Paul knew we were going to need the supreme, this, this, this supreme example of humility to find the motivation to even try to live like this as a church. It's so against our nature. So let's read them together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was found in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, was obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. And so there it is. That's the gospel. That's the good news, right? Jesus, fully God, emptied himself and became a man for for our sakes. He was obedient to a required death, even on a rugged cross. But as beautiful and true as that is, these verses are not about Jesus coming to the earth. They're not about his incarnation. They are about what motivates us to live in unity, which is the extreme example of humility, humility Jesus showed us when he came to the earth. And as you and I look at this, if you really look closely at these verses, we'll see that Jesus, step by step, each one more drastic than the one before, descending in greater and greater humility. So in verse 5, Paul teaches us, first and foremost, that unity is grounded in humility. And it starts with a a prevailing attitude, an all-encompassing attitude. It's an attitude. It says, have this mind among yourselves. Paul says simply, you got to think this way. This is the way Jesus thinks, and you are now in him, so this is the way that you should think. It needs to be an attitude that will drive your actions. So let's notice where it all began. The first thing we see in verse 6 is that Jesus is God. This verse says specifically that Jesus was the form of God. And the word form means essential character. Essential character. So Jesus was everything that was essential to characterize who God was. He was God. And so that's where it all started. The story of Jesus started with him as God in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit. Before he came to the earth, he pre-existed as God the Son in heaven. So his first step to illustrate what humility truly looks like began with him as God in heaven. Now I know what you might be thinking. I had the same thought. If this is supposed to be an example for me, how am I supposed to identify with Jesus being God in heaven? How am I supposed to identify that? Well, you can't. But let me tell you where you start. Let me tell you who you are. You are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are blessed with every blessing in heaven, remember? You are the chosen. You are the beloved. You are an ambassador. You are a priest. You are the anointed. You are chosen vessels. You are the children of promise. You are a holy habitation, Ephesians 2 tells us, of God the Spirit. Do you get it? You are not God, but you have some pretty lofty credentials. That's where you start. You are a big deal. So while you don't start out being God in heaven, you start out from a tremendous place of blessing. You got it? So what did Jesus do next? 
He started as God in heaven, and verse 6 tells us he took a step down and considered his position in heaven, not something that he couldn't give up. He was entitled to remain just as he was, where he was, but for our sake, he didn't clinch to it. He didn't clutch it. He didn't grasp onto it, white-knuckled, unwilling to take on a humble role for the sake of the cause of God. It was an attitude of submission to the greater cause. And for us, this might mean that even though we are all those things we said just a second ago and capable of doing many lofty things, we are for the sake of the body and for the community that we're here in, we will be willing to work in the nursery or we'll be willing to stay late or tear down or offer our home for a journey group. Maybe it's being willing to give up your freedom at work to be just autonomous and off to yourself or at the ball field and to live intentionally for the sake of Christ. And though we've been freed from sin and we live under grace, we don't clutch it like a possession, but willingly let it go for the sake of our brothers here and our potential sisters around us in our community. And then verse 7 says that Jesus emptied himself and he became a slave. And his humility took him another step down. And the word slave here is the Greek word doulos. And it literally means bond slave. And it carries with it the idea of being bought and owned by a master. And just like before, the word form means essential character. And so Jesus wasn't just playing a part. This wasn't a costume. He wasn't play-acting here. He became the slave of God to carry our sins and our mistakes and our burdens and our brokenness. And he went from being king to being a slave. And for Jesus, it didn't even stop there. Next, he would become a man and fully identify with the crud of the human race. Notice that the verses say that being born... In the likeness of men, in verse 8, being found in human form. And the difference between these two phrases is that the first speaks to how he had all the attributes, attributes of man just like you and me. He was in every way human. He was hungry and he was thirsty and he got angry. He felt pain and he felt embarrassment and he felt love and he felt weak. The second phrase, found in human form. And this is rich means that he was recognized by those around him as a human being. And what is significant about that is that the people around him understood him as being like them. Not God, not greater, not perfect, even though he was all of those things, and I'm sure they knew he was different. But what they saw was that he was humble. That's what people saw. And then and ultimately, verse 8 his humility took him to his death, even more death on a cross. Why? Because it had to. That was the price that had to be paid. We didn't put him on a cross. I hate it when people say that. We aren't responsible. We didn't put him on a cross. Jesus put himself on a cross for the cause of the task at hand. He chose willingly to go to the cross in obedience to the Father for our sake. So our mission at Westridge Church, at all of our locations, is leading people on a life-changing journey to become fully devoted followers of Christ. 
But if we're going to love God in worship, and if we're going to grow to know God and love Him more, if we're going to serve the body in our community and share the gospel with the lost, we'll only be successful if we do it in unity together. And we will never live in humility. I'm sorry, we will never live in unity without an attitude of humility. Without an attitude of humility. And so concluding, here's a question for us today. Are we willing to let our joy be God's job and let our mission be his glory? And I want to give you a chance to think about that for a minute. Are we together willing to let our joy be God's job? That's huge. That's big. That's emptying ourselves. That's becoming a slave. Are we willing to let our joy be God's job and let our mission be His glory? Are we going to strive with all humility to build this ministry, to grow this church through our unity? That's what I want us to be about this year and next year and the next year and the next year until our job is done here on earth. Okay? Okay?